0: Thanks for pressing play. Uh, Before we get into today's episode, I just want to respond to uh, many of you who've been emailing and tweeting and LinkedIn and so forth about um, our position on Spotify and the recent uh, Joe Rogan scandal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, really, all I want to say about this is pretty simple. We are still on Spotify. You may very well be listening to us on Spotify. And here's why. Around here, we believe in free speech, uh, even when that speech is disgusting, and we disagree with it. Um, because, frankly, if uh, who's the arbiter of what's disgusting, and who's the arbiter of who should say what, uh, and the minute you start to deal with that, you are on a very, very slippery slope. And in general, personally, uh, I disagree with uh, what today a lot of people call "quote unquote" cancel culture. So I am not a Joe Rogan fan. I disagree with a lot of things that he does and says. And most um, most importantly, I think it's disgusting that he gives a his platform to people like Alex Jones, who is a major conspiracy theorist and um, said and did some horrible things to the uh, victims of the Sandy Hook uh, mass killings that took place uh, a few years ago. And even after that, Uh, Rogan still puts, um, a piece of shit like that on his podcast and I find that disgusting. However, I do believe in free speech. And so, uh, there's a lot of disgusting things on Spotify. There's a lot of music lyrics that a lot of people find disgusting, et cetera, et cetera. But then who's the arbiter? And so I think we can say what we, um, want to say, especially here in the United States and in other free countries around the world. The one other thing I will say is, I also believe free speech comes with tremendous responsibility. And um, at least around here, myself and all of my colleagues that work on our oddcasts um, believe in trying to be as responsible as possible for that free speech. And um, as you know, I'm a huge champion of authentic dialogue. As a matter of fact, I think it's the biggest problem in the United States and in many parts of the world that um we've forgotten how to have civil discourse and sometimes in the extreme in the extreme that turns into civil war and if not all out civil war certainly some of the violence that we've been seeing in the past and if you listen to the last couple episodes i'm terrified there's going to be escalating violence in the united states uh what we're seeing in canada and in other countries around the world so we try to be as responsible as possible for the free speech around here I also want you to know there are folks who try to get on this podcast who I think have uh, interesting, provocative things to say that we know would um, uh, increase our downloads and, and the attention that we get. But we are not in an attention-seeking game. Uh, social media, particularly, and media in general, has become a place that rewards people who do ever-increasingly uh, outrageous shit. And, um, we're not interested in more listeners or more downloads or more likes or more money for that matter, uh, by being more outrageous for the sake of it. And some, uh, folks who, uh, tried to get on this podcast, particularly last uh, year or so have very fascinating counterintuitive and counter to, um, the quote unquote mainstream narrative things to say. And sometimes, Um, we're uh, glad to welcome those folks on. However, of late, there's been a handful that, in my opinion, have very interesting things to say, but also potentially very damaging things to say. And so in that regard, uh, we exercise our judgment. This is our platform. Um, We know that you trust us to make uh, responsible free speech decisions. And so in certain cases of late, Uh, While the topics or authors or thought leaders are interesting and things that may be worthy of discussion, if we think that um, lending our platform to those folks has a high potential to do damage in one way or another, uh, sometimes we decide not to have those conversations. So we will continue to be on Spotify, and that's why. And um, personally, I'll just share with you, I hope you appreciate our point of view on this stuff. And if you don't, let me know. I'd be curious to hear. Uh, blackhole at lockhead.com. Um, but please know these are things we think deeply about and we try to do our best on. Them. All right. We are at the start of um, a radical change in education, uh, both in primary school, middle school, and high school, and of course, um, in higher education. According to the National Student Clearinghouse, more than 1 million fewer students are in college cnbc says quote across the country colleges are in crisis cnbc further reports that quote the number of undergraduate students in college is now down 7.8 percent compared to two years ago the largest two-year enrollment drop in the last 50 years they go on to report that 62 percent of higher education leaders now say the biggest challenge they face is quote fewer students and less tuition revenue. As well, many high schools are primarily, and colleges for that matter, are primarily run by native analogs, people over the age of 35. And if you haven't dug into our work on native digitals and native analogs, I would highly, highly recommend you do that. You'll see it in the feed. And if you're a Category Pirates subscriber, you want to check out Category Pirates, uh, we've done some uh, big writing on what we call a new category of human, which are uh, native digitals. Most education uh, systems and schools uh, are run by native analogs. And unfortunately, many are preparing students for an analog world that no longer exists our returning guest today a man i deeply respect uh, who had a legendary career as a venture capitalist and has now dedicated himself to education ted dintersmith is back he's the author of the best-selling book what school could be and if you care about this topic i highly recommend picking up a copy i greatly enjoyed it on this episode we dig into all of these topics and most importantly how school can be reimagined, redesigned, and recreated to become legendary. What parents, students, and education leaders can do now to develop our young people to thrive in the new world. And also pay sc- uh, close attention to Ted's ideas on um, the big things schools can do immediately to make the biggest difference. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Follow You Different. Podcast Magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And The Economist said that I was, quote, off-putting to some. Whatever you have to say, this is the oddcast exclusively for business people who value real, different dialogue with the legendary people making our world a different place. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. It sure is. Great to see you, Ted. How are you? I'm just fine. Great to see you. So much to talk about. Uh, There's a a whole bunch of things on my mind, but uh, I really am curious uh, where you would like to start this conversation.
1: Well, a good place to start might be the pair of podcasts you did on analog natives versus digital natives. I think that's a fascinating topic. And as you know, I've spent the last 10 years of my life focused on school and education issues. And that really brought things into sharp focus for me.
0: Hmm. I'm curious. How so?
1: Well, you know, one of the issues is that school as we know it was designed by native analogs for native analogs for a world that's native analog. And when you see the disconnect that has with younger kids and how many of them are bored to tears or just don't resonate with what they're being asked to do in school, you realize it really is in many important ways, this collision between analog natives and digital natives.
0: It's interesting because sort of since we had the collective aha around here about this whole bifurcation and and this sort of thing that's been hiding in plain sight, which is uh, those of us native analogs are the last native analogs ever. And that, of course, these pure native digitals are the first. And of course, they're going to get more and more native digital as we go. Right. And so that's just been a reverberating aha around here. And, and one of them, as it relates to education, and there's, there's a zillion I want to talk to you about, but um, think about how young people spend time on TikTok versus how they enjoy Zoom school.
1: Right. You, you, it's just profound. And what I've found is that I talk to people about that framing, you know, and, and I agree with you, you know, as, as an analog native, you know, our days are numbered. But when you talk to the older people they don't buy into the fact that there's a really profound difference. And when you talk to younger people, they say, of course, there's a profound difference. And, and you realize that you know, you, when you live in a digital world, you have control over what you do. You're able to go deep on what you're interested in. The content is either really compelling or you just switch to something else. Plop that same kid over into school, and oftentimes it's programmed, scripted, boring content that the student has no interest in or voice in, that the teacher really is not that interested in either, but some state legislator or some, you know, the college board or some curriculum writer says, this is what you got to learn. And the kids just check out on it. And, and, And it's really an epidemic because I think kids find school boring. They don't feel they have any real sense of purpose in it. And they know there's an alternative universe that's much more compelling.
0: That last statement, I want to get into that last statement. But before we go there, there's something rattling around in my head as you're talking, which is, I remember when I first read your book, awesome book, What School Could Be. I'm remembering the title right, am I not? Perfect, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't want to screw it up because I really did enjoy it. Um, and I remember the book well, and I remember our first conversation, just getting to know you well. And one of the things that sort of, stayed with me the most from the conversation in the book, and it's been a while, is that the, the students that are most successful, the schools that are most successful, one part of the new formula, if you will, is this notion of agency, that the student has agency over her time. And yes, there's some baseline things we want everybody to understand about history or math or science or phys, phys ed or whatever the topics are. But back, past some base level appreciation knowledge that the child or even adult learner should have agency that is to say, I really want to focus on this or that or the other. So I have that as a big memory. Am I remembering that right? Let me stop there.
1: Absolutely. And and that was where, as I traveled the country and visited all those schools, that's where I saw kids engaged, kids actually retaining what they were learning, a degree of joy in the learning. And Teachers were really excited to be in the classroom every day. But I also said and observed that that was quite rare across classrooms in America.
0: Yes. So if we go back to native digitals and native analogs, um, uh, ever since sort of we had this insight and started writing about it and talking about it on podcasts, I have been fascinated by how angry it makes some people. Uh, I posted on TikTok, uh, on TikTok, yeah. I've never posted anything on TikTok. I posted on LinkedIn, uh, I don't know, maybe a week or so ago now, part of one of the category Pirates letters on this topic. And um, people conflate it with ageism very quickly. And they get very angry at me and they want to have an argument with me about it uh, on on many fronts. But I'm curious, as you have started, started to think about this and talk to people about this sort of lens on top of the education lens that you had already been building for kind of new ways to have breakthroughs in teaching. What has transpired in your world as you sort of apply the native digital, native analog lens to the conversation?
1: Well, I have they had the same experience you've had more recently when I posed this question to people. And it, it does make older people really uncomfortable. And, and, you know, their first line of response is that, you know, this is just a distracting thing. that kids go down the, the video game rat hole and, you know, kind of nothing's really changed. And, and it, I, I say, yeah, absolutely. We don't want kids going down a video game rat hole. That's for sure. But don't you think in important ways that the world as they see it is really different from the world we saw when we were young or see today? And, and I, as I said, there's been this really sharp division where younger people say, that's obvious. And older people say, what are you talking about? And that's not 100%, but that's largely the, the pattern. And, and I think as long as those older people are the ones controlling what goes on in school, The ones sanctioning certain assessment frameworks, the ones approving curriculum, the ones training the next generation of teachers, you're going to find a massive disconnect between what kids would love to do, between what kids would retain joyfully and actually prepare them for great careers, and what's actually happening. And I think that disconnect is why so many kids just feel checked out in the school process. And, And that was something that was happening. Pre-pandemic, but now it's you know it's it's only been I think amplified when when you see kids on the receiving end of Zoom lectures or something. I mean, just really painful experience. Yes, and and reality is the kids know there's a different way, right? I mean, it's not as though this is news to the younger kids. I mean, they're they're sitting there saying, "Why is this person droning on at me about something I'm not terribly interested in?" Because, and they see this if they get interested in something and are supported. They can learn a million things in no time. You know, I mean, I, that's one of the things that's so curious is I'll hear from adults all around the country, you know, in schools, parents, whatever, this, they'll say this, you know, it's amazing if a kid gets really interested in something, they can become an expert in a matter of days or weeks. And I'll say, shouldn't that have profound ramifications for the way we organize learning experiences in school? but it rarely
0: does. Yes. Interesting. Um, So a couple things after this sort of discovery of this thing, hiding in plain sight, one of the ah ahas me and my uh, fellow pirates have had is um, we have for years have heard about parents need to limit screen time. He'll limit screen time and only so much screen time during the week. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et etc. And punishment, you do something bad, we take away screen time. And anything we can do to get minimize screen time. So okay, however, if your primary experience of life is digital and your secondary experience of life is analog, when you take away screen time, You're taking me out of my life. And let me make an insane statement. We could be in a world where if you take a child out of their primary life for too long, someone's going to call Child Protective Services (laughs) because you're you're effing torturing them. Now that's an extreme statement. I'm making an extreme statement on purpose, but um, Ted thoughts, comments, reactions to screen time in the context of all of this.
1: Yeah. I'd start by saying not all screen time is created equally. You know, it's, you know, kids that go down the rat hole of video games and spend endless hours passively absorbing stuff or kids that obsess over what is going on with friends on Instagram you know, let's just concede the fact that some screen time can be very damaging to kids and their mental outlook, you know, check. I think where the gaping disconnect comes into play is this, is that when kids associate learning with something really boring, something that they just can't wait to get away from, they tend to retreat into screen time as a, as a, thank God, I can get away from that. Right. So thank God. And so then they will do things that are just like chilling. I'm just going to play a bunch of video games or whatever. And, And I feel like if we were to start to lean into the fact that the digital world for kids properly organized can be this window empowering them to learn just gigantic amounts in a very short period of time and actually find it quite consequential, retain it, learn how to apply it. If we were to lean into that, I don't think you'd see kids beating a retreat into useless screen time. I think they'd say, thank goodness, I can take my experiences in the digital world and use that as as a really powerful learning tool. But but, but in schools, let's, let's just be really honest, in schools, generally amplifying your ability to learn by accessing resources online is called cheating and you'll be expelled, right? Like, Heaven forbid somebody actually looks at other resources, actually leverages other people's thinking, actually just sort of makes enormous amounts of strides in no time by gaining a really great perspective of what the state of the art of knowledge is, and then taking it further from there. I mean, we'll call that plagiarism. We'll call that cheating. We'll call that every which every bad thing we can think of. And so it's like you know, put it away. You've got to prepare for these tests where you can't use any of these resources. And I think whether they can articulate it or whether they just sort of subliminally realize it, kids know this is kind of a bad deal. You know, like, why am I being asked to memorize all this bullshit when I, I know I can just look it up? And why am I being tested on it in a way that says, oh, you know, like, if I can't memorize the 50 state capitals, be, be able to recall them from memory, you know, I'm not going to be a great fifth grade geography student when they say, oh, my gosh, it's apparent.
0: So on this one, this is a fascinating one, and people have been talking about this for many, many years, decades, is that we're shifting from a world where to be considered smart was to have accumulated vast amounts of knowledge and to be able to recall that knowledge uh, at any time and apply it. Right. Right. And and there's still a lot of validity in that. Of course, I'm not saying that that's not uh, a huge uh, importance. However. In a world where you can ask Alexa or Siri anything, you don't have to know how many home runs Mickey Mantle hit, because if you ask her, she'll tell you. And so we're, of course, moved to a world now where uh, learning to think, learning to do stuff, learning to make stuff, learning to collaborate, uh, learning to communicate and many other things, of course, but sort of more functional things in life, if I could call them that seem to be increasing in value because the, the retrieval of knowledge is at our fingertips. Absolutely. But I, I'd be curious as to your reaction.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's not a little point. That's a gigantic point. And when I visit schools, the first question I like to ask them is the following. If we put a new student in your school tomorrow morning, and this student excelled at memorizing material Replicating low level procedures and following instructions, my bet is that student would be on your honor roll. Is that true? And over and over again, the answer is yes, that student will be on the honor roll. And then I say, you know, that's exactly what machine intelligence does perfectly instantly. And, And so, if in fact our figure of merit, if in fact what lets you do really well on the school's tests, the state mandated exams, the SAT, AP courses, is a narrow skill that's of a decreasing amount of importance, you know, then you're pushing kids to be good at something that really isn't very consequential. And it's not just that. It's not just that they're wasting time on something. It's that in the process, they're losing all those things you want them to retain. They they are, their curiosity is plummeting. Their creativity is atrophying. Their willingness to really challenge things, you know, you know, you you look at the kids that are going to do really well. They're the ones that go deep into an area and become an expert. But if you're in a school, that could cost you being on the honor roll. And and then everybody just, you know, panics. You know, oh, my gosh, you know, you could get a C in this course because you're not taking it seriously. And, and so it's, in a very real sense, we're pushing kids. And this is where that conflict between, you know, native digitals and native analogs comes into play. We're pushing kids to be good at something that we should just absolutely recognize is not the important thing. It's not knowing some facts. It's being able to do important things with those facts. It's, it's being able to, and, and it's just painful to observe, right? Because, uh, you know, I was blown away. You had this, this woman on, on one of your shows, Hannah Grady-Williams, and I'm listening to that podcast. And, and about every five minutes, I had to like pinch myself and said, I'm pretty sure at the beginning, Christopher asked her and she said she was 23 years old, you know, like, like I'm saying like, how could a 23 year old be such a, a compelling spokesperson on important issues? But the reason is that she's like a lot of other young adults, given the support, given the motivation, they be, they can just sprint ahead, right? I mean, you can just stand on the shoulders of giants if you're accessing what's been done before and it in, in your own distinctive way forward. Yeah, and the question really is, why isn't that the heart and soul of school today?
0: Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. And by the way, you and I might be in a competition now for uh, who can be president of Hannah's fan club because I had the same experience meeting her and luckily, we've created a little bit of a bond, and so uh, we we have an email thread from time to time. And uh, I I just think she's amazing, and I want to just support her. And I I'm dearly appreciative of her educating me and her writing her book, etc. Now, here's something in that in that vein. I had this aha fairly recently, Ted, to sh- that sort of in my mind, massively underscores the Grand Canyon size Delta between native digitals and native analogs. So we have this horrible pandemic occur and digital school emerges overnight. Let's just think about this for a second. The consumers of school, I'm not talking about college and, and so forth, but elementary school, middle school, et cetera, are native digitals, every single one of them by definition. School now becomes digital. And so now school is brought to their world. And they fucking hate it. <laughs> and so you go, now, wait a minute. How can this be? You're native digitals. We brought the school into your world. Shh, wouldn't you love it? And, and of course, the learning here for me, and I want to bounce all this off you like an idea, is... The way native analogs and native digitals think about the use of digital technology is so fucking different that the first attempt native analogs make at going to a digital education results in what I think a lot of people, and if this is unfair, tell me, this is just most of the kids in my life tell me, was the worst year in modern history of education when they tried to meet them in the digital world. And is that emblematic of how far the two generations are from each other?
1: Yeah. Worst year for the students, worst year for the teachers, worst year for the parents. You know, it's left everybody in the school ecosystem grumpy as can be, you know, which is an issue we could talk about because it's a huge challenge and problem going forward. But, you know, there's this confusion, right? If you take, you know, what's the saying, old wine in a new bottle or something like that? I'm not very good at cliches, but if you take a boring lecture, and now have somebody watch it on their laptop instead of in person that doesn't make it a digital experience right and and what we saw during the pandemic was that the the educators that got things i think really right were the ones that would pose these very interesting challenges to students and then say go at it and and whether that's students in class or at home you know if you challenge them in a way that they think this is not a bullshit thing this is actually interesting And you say, leverage whatever resources you want, work with your classmates, but come back and tell us what you think about this. I mean, the amount of learning is profound under those circumstances. And these kids don't have to be micromanaged, but that doesn't happen very often. So instead we just said, you know, let's take what we did in person, port it onto Zoom. Schools had to struggle. I'll tell you, like, these are the real issues that come up, right? Do we make the student have their screen visible? their video camera active, in which case you can sort of see where that student's living, which raises issues, or you let them blank their screen, in which case, you know, you know, they're probably off playing with their dog or, you know, who knows what. And, and it just sort of devolved down into how do you make bad pedagogy better online? And, well, and just,
0: students, I, it, to interrupt that, you on this one, it, stupidity on top of stupidity on this one. When I found out, I asked my nieces and nephews of this question about the camera. They said, "No, no, we don't have our cameras on. We're, we're, no, none of us do." I said, oh, "Well, tell me about that. Why is that?" And here was the answer: Not all kids can afford cameras. And so if you say it's mandatory, some can't. And if you say it's not mandatory, but we would like you to, then essentially you are digitally ostracizing those without a camera. Ergo, no cameras. Right. As opposed to, okay, well, how do we find a creative way to buy these kids some cameras? Yeah. So rather than say, how do we try and elevate the experience for everybody, which I understand is hard. And look, I don't want to sound overly shitty when this thing first happened, I mean, every, I can't even imagine being a teacher. So I, I, I don't, you know, many of these teachers are heroes. So I, I don't, I want this to sit in that context, but the point being uh, why optimize for the lowest and worst outcome in this, in this ex- exact case, as opposed to try to figure out a way, I mean, I don't know, call Logitech and get them to donate a bunch of cameras.
1: Yeah. You know, in my book, I'm going to go pre pandemic on this, but, but i highlighted things that blew me away by state. And so I'll go right to your native state of California. And I contrasted this really remarkable superintendent who's old enough to be, you know, a native analog, but, but still got, you know, I, I, I think that there are native analogs that sort of have, I would say are digital bolt-ons. They at least understand this. This is a guy named Daryl Adams, who charismatic, he, he toured as a backup band to Hall & Oates for eight years. And then he taught music in schools and became a principal. And he was promoted to superintendent of the second poorest district in the company, Coachella. And he made the most informed, thoughtful use of technology in an incredibly poor district and and waged a campaign and got them to pass a bond bill for this program he called Wi-Fi on Wheels, where they take the buses at night and park them into the, you know, these really, you know, these neighborhoods without Wi-Fi access. And they all had Wi-Fi routers on them. And so, you know, go to the trailer park, go to the, you know, and like all these kids, you know, were given digital tools, but he did something really smart with it, right? Because he's a very creative guy, he unleashed these kids on creating and producing things that they were really proud of, leveraged by technology capability. And I contrasted Daryl, who honestly should be our U.S. Secretary of Education today. I contrasted him with, and this will raise hackles for some of the audience, right? With something I find just ultimately underwhelming, which is Khan Academy. And and Khan Academy teaches lots of kids, mostly rich kids, by the way, math, with these short video lectures about math that really no adult ever uses, followed by multiple choice questions. And if you get five questions in a row right or 10, you know, it depends, uh, then you've mastered it and you move on to the next thing. And I'm The same period of time, at that time, I was on their thought leadership council. So I'm in this room, and I won't mention names, but a lot of those names are quite familiar with some of the most successful business people in America, each and every one of whom is an analog native, right? They are like over the moon excited about teaching kids math they don't retain and are very unlikely to use on a device that does that that little tiny procedure perfectly. You know, they don't even know what photomath is. You know, like all the kids know what photomath is. Show the camera, you know, just position the camera on your smartphone over the expression and it solves a problem for you. And and somehow this was a major advance. And, you know, and Daryl would say, and I would say, no, 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 we, we, we need to reinvent. You know, if in fact the technology at our fingertips does a low level bullshit, we should be teaching kids how to leverage that as Daryl did in Coachella but instead you sort of get this groundswell of you know like let's just take the stuff that arguably is completely obsolete at this point put it on you know in videos and deliver it digitally and isn't that a great breakthrough and and the reality is no it's not a great breakthrough and and I think what happens is that what you know kids are on to this not every kid but you know like and and, and I think this is why You know, one of the things that struck me is I'll talk to a lot of, I interview a lot of students and, you know, there is way more cheating going on in our schools than I think people recognize. And, and when you ask kids about this, they're pretty open. And, and the reason they think it's okay to cheat is they don't think what they're doing is at all important. You know, know, like, like they just say, this is just a bullshit thing. Somebody shoving down my throat, you know, like, what. You know, it's really, this is an exaggeration to make the point, but if you made kids in schools memorize a Santa Cruz phone book, would you really blame a kid for cheating on a test that said, look up so-and-so in Santa Cruz, what's their address and phone number? I think you'd say, I'm kind of on the side of the kid. I mean, that's kind of a stupid thing to make them memorize a phone book. But I think kids sort of look at a lot of the things they're, they're tasked to do and say, this isn't that much different from memorizing phone book. And I think teachers see that as well, but who doesn't see it? You know, largely state legislators, the people who write the textbooks, the people who design the tests and, you know, the college admissions officers.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so this, this gets me to the big question is, okay, so who's responsible for, I, you know, I understand the teachers need to teach certain things. And they have some agency, but in a lot of cases they don't. And so who's responsible for the curriculum and the testing that sits next to the curriculum in most of the country?
1: Well, you know, you've got uh, and it gets worse. You know, the elementary schools, I think, do a great job until they get really wailed on to prepare kids for junior high school and then middle school and then high school. But, you know, it's state mandated curriculum. And states are getting more and more extreme on that and involved. And that's, I think, by and large, not a good thing. And you get the college admissions officers. And there's a general perception, I think somewhat misguided, but a general perception among parents that the more AP courses their kids take, the better they'll look to an admissions officer. And and so we have this goal. I'll give you a great example. Very timely today. I mean, would anybody... Believe that we should have kids leave high school not having a pretty great understanding of the role of the U.S. Constitution. Seems like a good thing to be on top of today. And yet two-thirds of the, you know, of adults in America can't name the three branches of government. You know, I mean, t- t- what's the guy's name from Alabama, Tuberville, the former coach? You know, he thought the three branches of government were the you know, president, senate, and house.
0: Uh, didn't Judge Judy just get elected to the Supreme Court?
1: I think that's coming. Yeah, that's right around the ground. It could be next. <laughs> Let's not plant that.
0: I think it's probably um, an internet joke or meme, but that, you know this sort of statistic yeah. that 72% of Americans think Judge Judy's on the Supreme Court.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, the AP U.S. history spends less than a class period on the Constitution, right? Two class periods on World War II, two class periods on the Vietnam War.
0: They don't know what Auschwitz is. And the other one that's crazy, this is a bit of a side, but they don't know how to manage a fucking credit card or a bank account or, God forbid, cryptocurrency. Yeah. I mean, today, you should should be able to understand cryptocurrency as part of graduating from high school.
1: Yeah. Let alone balance a checkbook. Or know, by the way, just how pernicious compound interest can be which is totally shoveled to the side. I mean, there, I think it's just six states require any financial literacy at all. And honestly, think of the unbelievably great math class you could teach strictly in the context of financial literacy. I mean, when you start getting into, you know, things like portfolio balancing, you get into statistics, probability, you know, there's a wealth of great math that underlies financial literacy skills. Instead. Back to Khan Academy. We teach it all in abstract. Kids are doing trig proofs and not understand why they're doing it. Kids are factoring polynomials. Kids are having to define what an irrational number is. Kids are doing hyperbolic, hyperbolic cosine transformations to do a closed form integral. They do all this low level mechanical crap. And, and then you ask even the best students coming out of high school how you'd ever apply it. They have no idea. And then, by the way, then the ones that go to college just sign the FAFSA papers and have no, you you talk to a 25 year old with 150 K of student loan debt. You say, how did this happen? He said, my gosh, I just don't know. You know, like I, I, was told it all work out. And so I just signed the documents and you know, it's, it's kind of not working out. <laughs> and I was like, no shit. It's not working out.
0: Yeah. Do that math now for fuck's sakes. Yeah. So, so here's my big question around this. So, um, so there's state mandated education and there's college admission officers, and these folks are essentially setting the bar for what schools need to teach and then test against, yes? Yeah. And I know you probably don't have the data in front of you, but you're pretty educated, or you're certainly the most educated person I know on this stuff. What would roughly the average age of the state legislator and or college admission officer who is setting these education standards, therefore curriculum, what would their age be roughly?
1: Well, state legislators, you'll find an occasional person on a education committee with an education background, but but by and large, they're clearly, you know native digitals you know i mean sorry native analogs so clearly and so they tend to be older get tough we got to hold you know schools accountable to taxpayers And, and i think a really i'll i'll take a second for a joke and i'm not the best joke teller but there's a joke where you're walking down the street you come you see this drunk on their hands and knees underneath the streetlight and you ask them what they're doing and they say i'm looking for my car keys and you say, can I help? And you get down and you look for the car keys for a while and you're not finding them, they're not finding them. And you say, are you sure you lost them here? And they say, no, I'm pretty sure I lost them, you know, way back there, but it's really dark back there. And this is where I can see. So I'm going to look for them here. And, and so you realize that, that we really obsess around data in our schools. And so we teach kids and test kids on things that are easy to generate the data with. And so these low-level math, you know, micro tasks are perfect fodder for the standardized test designers. College admissions officers, they love the data. You know, like I can just quickly see grade point average, number of AP courses, average score in an AP course, SATs and ACTs, although encouragingly, they're getting downplayed to some extent. I think that's a good development, but the numbers tend to be convenient metrics. And so people sort of drive things to those convenient metrics. But when you start to look at what really matters, you know it's curiosity it's creativity it's audacity it's you know leveraging resources in a really effective way and those don't lend themselves to data so those tend to be the things we downplay in schools to make sure kids are studying what gives them and their school and their district the numbers that make them be able to say this is why we're doing well and and you see that as well you know i did a film on charter schools most likely to succeed there's some really amazing charter schools out there but an awful lot of charter schools are test prep factories to get better numbers out of their kids. And, you know, it's just like what this, this isn't a particularly aspirational vision of what we could be doing to help our schools prepare kids for their lives as adults.
0: Amen. Hallelujah. So let me bounce this scenario off you to see if it's got, if it holds any water, my gut guess would be that, the vast majority of people who influence, if not dictate curriculum are, of course, native analogs and not. Let me say it this way. Not the youngest of native analogs, either older Gen Xers or younger to maybe not so much younger baby boomers. Would would that be a fair guesstimate of who the people are in charge of the curriculums ultimately?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair fair assessment. And there's also just a general sense of just going with what's there before. I mean, you think about, um, it's a long story, but I got in front of, so hold uh, on before you go there,
0: Ted, I'm sorry. I I really want to just get through this idea uh, before, before we go there, if you could. So, so if, if that's correct, that they're native analogs and they're probably more on the older Gen X side, uh, and into the boomer side. That would mean that they're going to be retiring in a handful of years. We know, I think, I may be off on the number. I thought it was 25,000 boomers retire a day in America. If it's not that, it's some impressive number like that. Anyway, so they're now handing off to the next generation, which will actually be um, uh, what today you might consider younger native analogs, Uh, people who are in their 40s late thirties, you know, 35, we consider to be roughly the cutoff. So if you're 45, you're still pretty native analog, uh, 50, et cetera. Anyway, here's my point. Are we three generations of, um, curriculum designers for lack of a better term away from having native digitals designing how to teach and assess native digitals
1: yeah i hope so i mean i you know you i i would say if i had to guess that this could be a 10 to 20 year transition not a next five year transition
0: so here's the problem how is america not to put it bluntly fucked yeah because if we're living in a native digital world and the purpose of education is to prepare a young person to be a successful person in life across all dimensions. And so they're native digital people growing up in a native digital world. And when they fly the nest, they are going to be living in a native digital world. And it's going to be 15 or more years before native digitals are actually in the positions to start being the people who decide on the curriculum. And at least as of right now, please tell me if this is not the case for the most part, uh, there's no indication that the people in power around creating curriculum are even considering the Delta between native digitals and native analogs.
1: Yeah. And, and back to why is America not fucked? I mean, at the end of my book, I connect dots between, education priorities and the health of a democracy and made the point that if we keep sending wave after wave after wave of young adults into the world, not terribly prepared for citizenship, not prepared for career, sort of taking all the potential they could realize and largely trying to bend them to uh, an analog native framework, you know, those kids are, are cut off and adrift. And there are a lot of adults that are also hurting because you just see machine intelligence racing ahead. And so you look at this weird labor market we have today in America, where you've got tens of millions of jobs unfilled and tens of millions of people looking for jobs, and they just don't have the skills to meet, you know, meet them. And, and here's what I think is really, and I, I would totally emphasize this point, is when I interview you know, young adults, and I interview a lot of them, I'll ask them this question. I, I, and particularly graduates of top colleges. So if it's true for graduates of top colleges, you got to figure it's true for dropouts from high school. I'll say, what are you so good at today that an adult organization would want to hire you and know you would add value day one? You know, it's like mostly draw blanks. Or I majored in accounting, so I'm a real expert on accounting. And then you talk to the employers and they say, well, actually we have to kind of unteach that. The second question I'll ask them is, if there wasn't a single job out there you could apply to, what's a career path you could create today? And Christopher, they, they'll look at me like, "What you mean that's an option? You mean I could actually create? Nobody told me that. And, and you realize you're we're putting these kids through 12, 14, 16 years of jumping through meaningless hoops, driving out of them their curiosity and creativity and audacity rewarding them for basically being go-fetch-a-dog-biscuit kids, and then they get out, and some of them end up in jobs that, that, that value that. But, but our economy is totally different, right? You know, like we don't live in the world where I got out of high school, which was 1970, where, you know, there were lots of jobs in these big hierarchical organizations that valued exactly what I said a few minutes ago. They valued retaining content, Replicating low level procedures and following instructions. That was a pretty good skill set for General Motors or a big insurance company or ATT or whatever. Uh, those jobs are largely gone at this point. And, and so when you start to view this and step back and say, are we preparing our young adults or in our, our older adults? We talked about no one really know, you know, no one can, very few can explain the Constitution. You, you realize, man, we are running into this buzzsaw of people who don't have the career skills to plug in and make a difference, who don't have the citizenship skills to understand how our government really works or evaluate sources of information and know whether they're credible or not. If if those are largely missing skills in our our society, what happens? And we're we're seeing that. I mean, this isn't fantastic. This isn't speculative. This is America today. And, And... my worry is it stands to get worse.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting you say that. Uh, one of the big downsides of technology, of course, is uh, stupid scales faster today than ever before. And, you know, the number of people who believe that um, Bill Gates has a Bigfoot farm. And he uh, trains them to climb up the 5G towers to install the coronavirus misters so that he can make money selling the vaccine, which has a chip in it so he can track all of us. That is a fucking mind boggling thing to think there are many people who believe, if not exactly that, some, I'll use the word on purpose, variant of that. Yeah. Or you probably saw the
1: the young kid, I think he's 23, who created this birds aren't real campaign, you know, to convince people that birds aren't actually a, you know, phenomena of nature, but are actually micro drones designed to spy on us all. And it was all sort of just to make the point that you can pretty much get people to believe anything. And, and unfortunately, you know, when you start to look at school, uh, you know, these great guys at, uh, out of Stanford, Sam Weinberg and Joel Breakstone, have done a lot of research on can even our best students tell the difference between something wholly made up versus something well-researched and accurate. And they found that even our top students fumble at that. A- and to convince them that something is accurate and, and valid, really, it boils down to a professional looking website, a credible URL ending in .org and footnotes. And, and you can have that and say birds <laughs> aren't real. Bill Gates is tracking you with the, the, these vaccination implants or who the heck knows what other crazy thing. And, and you, you just sort of say, like, well, where in the, you know, we talked about financial literacy, where are we focused on digital literacy in our society. Yes, yes. So that's missing. That's missing. And again, I think it comes back to we teach what the test makers want us to teach instead of what's important for kids to learn. Right. And so, you know, it's much easier to test people on factoring a polynomial in a standardized test than can, can you, you know, really in a nuanced, interesting way, explain what's really well thought out and sound about our Constitution and what amendments are urgently needed today.
0: So if we think about what's happening in this new native digital world at a high level, it's a few things, right? We have old things which are becoming digitized which is a very legitimate thing to go and do um, digital transformation for lack of a better, but, but the starting point for it is the way it is now. And we take the way that it is now and we make it digital in some way. And in some situations, that's a very valid thing to go do. The second bucket, which is a bucket I find personally more interesting is the, if you will, digital creation. Right. And so, um, eh, nfts by way of example are clearly not digital art it's something more than digital art it's actually a new thing uh digital art is a way to get there to understand what it is but it's actually not what it is it's actually a net new thing it's a new category Um, and that i find incredibly exciting so generally the people who create net new categories like that are people who understand sort of the very leading edge of where a lot of this technology is, and as importantly, if not more importantly, where user-customer behavior is in, in the context of whatever this new technology is. So in other words, it's the people who can imagine a different future who are the ones that can create it. And in that regard, I think if you're going to be creating different futures that are native digital and you happen to be native analog, you're insane if you think you can do that without talking to and including native analogs. Because if I want to become an expert on Japanese culture and history and food... I need to study up on that shit, but you know what? Spending time with Japanese people is going to make a giant difference in that regard. And so I'm leading to something I promise. And so where are the native analog leaders in education as it relates to listening to, including collaborating with their customer, the native digitals?
1: Yeah. Well, For good reason. You know, I I don't think that's a priority for most of these people in education. And and I want to express a degree of great sympathy for people in education positions today. I mean, it's been a god-awful, terrible 21 months. And people are grumpy. You know, they're fighting wars on all sorts of fronts. We've spun up this, that, and the other thing as to major issues. So, I wish I could say I have a lot of hope that the, the native analogs are going to be having a great discussion with the native digitals and saying we're going to rethink everything about education and blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I hope so, but I I don't I don't think that's gonna be like spreading like wildfire across our country. Here's what I do think is interesting, right? Is I think that the younger kids are starting to realize that there is a different path. You know, like like if path A is jumping through these meaningless hoops you know, doing things just because your parents and your college admissions officer said you've got to do, think that your best possible outcome is to get into a college that rejects most applicants and then get there and say, yeah, I don't know, this isn't that great a situation. And most of the people I'm surrounded with aren't very happy. You know, absent seeing path B, I think it's very difficult to get off of that path A. It looks like uh, we've heard it's a safe path. Parents say it's a safe path, blah, blah, blah. I think more and more young adults are recognizing there is this path B, And and one of the things I'm really focused on in, in my work is to bring that to life and to help younger kids realize that, by gosh, if you, by the time you're 16, 17, 18, have created a career path and can make three times the minimum wage without, you know, I'm, I'm doing these micro pilots where the, the dare sounds to, to an older American sounds like it's implausible, impossible even, which is. Could we equip middle and high school kids with skills they enjoy, they've largely learned on their own, and then by taking an entrepreneurial approach in life, have demonstrated by the time they're eighteen they can make more than most college graduates? And people say, "Oh no, no, that's you know, we, uh, of course you need more years of ever more expensive education to have any chance at a career." But you know, when when we do this, you you mentioned at the start, you know, we we saw these kids in North Dakota start, you know, we said, help a nonprofit and, you know, tell us how you did it and see what happens. It was really that simple. It wasn't, we had no curriculum, no nothing. We just said to some younger kids in North Dakota, there's this thing called Giving Heart Day, pick a nonprofit you like, try to help them see what happens. Well, several of these kids designed digital marketing campaigns on TikTok to tell other young kids in North Dakota about the nonprofit, and then to get the young kids to tell their parents to donate. Well, you know, some of those kids are getting job offers from nonprofits run by, you know, analog natives who who have no idea what TikTok even is. And and what really can be transformational here is when kids realize, hey, I know a lot about how TikTok works. This is a skill that adult organizations value. And holy moly, I can actually create a great career. My point person in North Dakota was perfect, right? He, He graduated from high school, spent... A semester in college said, you got to be kidding, and started his own digital media consulting firm. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, like, it's right there. And and it's like, isn't that a powerful vision, right? Young kids diving into the digital world, finding things they enjoy, teaching themselves what they need to know, applying it to challenges they think are meaningful, and coming out of it with customer testimonials and digital examples of their work that mean they're quite hireable with or, and it's not to say they don't go to college but they're often running with or without more costly years of formal education
0: thank you for that that was legendary uh it reminded me of a, 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 of a quick story to share with you and see if how this triangulates so um one of my two writing partners his name is nicholas cole he goes by cole um he started writing digitally when he was, I don't know, 15 or 16, something like that. He's 30 today. And he's one of the most consumed and most prolific uh, online digital uh, business writers of all time. Anyway, he tells the story of being in college, taking some writing class and him beginning to ask questions about, well, you know, what about the internet? And what about Twitter? And what about, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the professor's like, you know, sort of shooing him off. Like, no, no, we're going to study whatever, whatever it was they were going to study. And he had this aha, which is, I know more about the future of writing. I'm paraphrasing, but the future of writing than this guy does. And there's some stuff about the past of writing. That's important, of course, but uh, I don't need this guy to help me read Shakespeare. I need to figure out where the puck's going to be. And so he said, fuck it. And he has the most legendary career you could possibly imagine as a 30 year old, if you want to make a living writing business shit. And so, so with that story told, you know, that happened, I don't know what year that happened, but that happened in college. So does that just start happening earlier and earlier and earlier? Because here's the other big aha. And then I want your reaction. When native digitals experience a native analog, being a donkey in the digital world, they go, You're a complete donkey. And so they discredit you completely. And so it doesn't matter what you say, because you're so clearly a fish out of water in their world, they just discredit whatever it is and you're sort of gone. And so, okay, with those two things said thoughts, questions, comments, reactions, insights.
1: Yeah, you know, I do, I do think, and it gives me, if if you said, where are you optimistic? And there's a lot going on in our world that would lead you to be pessimistic. But where are you optimistic? It is these really inspiring examples of young kids that just say, I'm willing to go a bit rogue and learn a bunch of stuff on my own and run circles around these older people. And, and you see, it, I mean, I see it in so many different walks of my life where these, you know, like, w- what company in their right mind would hire, a, a? you know, I'm 69, what country company in their right mind would hire somebody my age to run a digital marketing campaign for them? You're like, the people who know how to use that stuff are in their twenties, right? You know, and you see some of these people just sprint ahead. And I think the more people recognize it's the Buckminster Fuller. How do you, how do you replace an obsolete model? You don't replace it by convincing people it's obsolete. You replace it with something that's clearly better, but, but the, it brings to mind in this sort of ties back to some of the discussions we had before and that joke about where do you look for your street, you know, your lost keys, you look under the street lamp. You know, I've been looking at some of these studies that people are doing about does the mind work differently for you know native digitals versus native analogs? And it's very interesting, right? Because the people that do the studies are native analogs and the metrics they use to evaluate what's going on are native analog metrics. So you'll get this guy, and he seems a bit pompous to me, who will say, well, you know, these kids that get really good at moving blocks on a computer screen, it doesn't translate into moving three-dimensional blocks in real life. And, and in his mind, he's thinking these kids have learned something useless, and he misses the entire point that these kids are going to live in a world that's largely a digital world. Or you'll get these other studies, and they're you know I've been combing these things, where they'll say, Well, you know, too much screen time clearly leads to worse outcomes in language skills and cognitive skills, and and they don't show their tests. But what are the, you you can just bet that the language skills are evaluated by showing kids boring reading passages that they find dull as can be, and then testing them on questions like, are there signs of author bias? Or, you know, where, where did Joe Bag of Donuts leave his hat on Thursday or something like that? And and they don't look at the plus here. They don't look at the creativity, the passion, the agency that kids get when they're allowed to essentially perform open field running in a world that's far more engaging for them. And so they'll sit there and they'll sort of poo-poo it and say, you got to watch it and everything else. And as I say, I'm not overlooking the fact that, that you know, there is an addictive aspect of this. I'm not overlooking the fact that not all kids have equal access to digital resources you know, those are all important points to, to put a, you know, an emph- emphatic point on, but it is to say that when analog natives do the testing, they're going to use the, the, you know, native analog, I always sort of switch the order, but they're going to use native analog metrics and they're going to conclude something's wrong. And meanwhile, some of these younger kids, and I hope it's more and more and more realize I don't need this bullshit. You know, like I can go and run fast and run deep. And if we can somehow, you know, and you've got a great entrepreneurial background and I've spent a lot of time in that world. You know, you compare, I I think this is a really great comparison. You compare business school, which is two years and super expensive. And a lot of times the people teaching entrepreneurship are the people that had a failed startup or were lousy venture capitalists, right? And so people are spending 200K to get, I think, by and large, crappy background on being entrepreneurial to a Y Combinator, right? Where you know, ninety month immersion, occasional great, inspiring contributions from people you really respect, people actually doing it, diving in, and you know, in in the Bay, in, in Silicon Valley, uh, if, if you're going to put real credibility on somebody, I think I think people out there weigh somebody, give somebody more cred if they're a Y Combinator grad. Than if they were a Stanford Graduate School business grad or an HBS grad, and I think when people start to realize that they can actually convince people of their skills because they do have digital portfolios, they do have digital representations that show they can actually accomplish something remarkable, and then use that to be the thing that lets them create a great career path, they're going to be off and running. and And so, the more we can make that happen, the more we kind of make everybody just sort of say, you know, I don't mind parting ways with an obsolete model because, you know, it's not free fall. It's not that the, the earth is going to collapse under my feet if I'm not on that honor roll. It's, the, you know, it's like, this is actually incredibly liberating. And, and I think that's where we have enormous opportunities. And so we may take a long time to change the entrenched institutions, but maybe we can change the mindsets of middle and high school kids a lot faster. Right. If we start showing them success cases and they start saying, you know, like, okay, I can jump through these hoops, get into a slightly more selective college, you know, go through that experience, which for some kids is a great experience, but for a lot of kids isn't. Or I can get really good at something I enjoy and in the summers show that I can actually market those capabilities. Maybe spend a bunch of my time making the world better with some of this, you know, my skills. You know those kids are going to be more likely to turn on a dime, I think, than than the you know native analogs running these institutions.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. And of course, I agree. The other thing that makes it interesting is this new direct to creator model, where creators and their consumers um, can be direct with each other. And of course, um, what is a teacher a creator? Yeah. And so in a, in a digital world, I'll give you a simple example. In my opinion, the vast majority of marketing professors are terrible to damaging. However, in a digital world, when I move marketing education online, I can select from the most legendary minds in marketing in all these different disciplines of marketing. So why would I learn from a fourth-tier moron, about everything in marketing at a community college when I could go and literally learn from the greats in all the various different disciplines that I'm interested in. And so um, are we going to get to a place where the issue is going to be helping empower agency via packaging Uh, or curating or making it easy for the learner to curate their own learning experiences. Is that ultimately where we land or where, where, where are we going here, Ted?
1: (laughs) Well, I think, I think that's reality today. That's the reality kids realize, right? You know, if they want to learn about something, there are so many great ways to learn. I mean, I, I think we can't underestimate the power of the statement that any motivated individual that wants to learn something on their own can learn it and find the most amazing resources for free. You know, it's just right there. I mean, you know, you can just sprint forward if you're motivated and really want to learn something. It's it, it's an amazing time. And so the question is why don't we bake that in to the fabric of our education systems to some extent? And and you know, you 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 talked about marketing courses, which I'm totally in agreement with. But as you know, you can find really bad marketing courses. You know, community colleges, undergraduate business schools, great, highly regarded business school. You know, masters business school programs, and and some of these are really expensive, bad education experiences, right? And so, so, so
0: if I could interrupt you there, one of the things, if you remember the conversation with the legendary Hannah, um, she made an argument that says. Apple's going to create their own marketing degree or designation of some kind for their own people. So they'll want to, if I remember her point, um, and that's a couple of whiskeys ago, but she was envisioning a situation where uh, companies like Apple, Google, whoever, would reach into high school and pull people out of high school or as they graduate from high school and say, look, you don't need to go to college if you want to be in marketing or product development or finance or whatever the thing is, come here and we have a degree in finance. So as you're interning, you'll also earn this degree. And then the step, so, so there's that. And then the step beyond that of course would be, well, Um, What if Apple took their how to be a legendary product manager course that they teach their own people and exposed it externally so that somebody could just go to learn apple.com or whatever, and take the course and be a certified or whatever designation Apple product management course graduate. And, and to your point, she was beginning to argue that says, "Well, if you wanted to be a product manager, that would probably be a lot more valuable than filling the blank, mid-level to good university degree to set you up to go be a product manager." Yeah, is, is, do you do you see that, Ted? Is that where we're going? I
1: think it's happening. You you look at Google has a whole suite of digital media tools for kids to learn, and and I think the where it gets really tangible is if. An adult, and it could be a young adult, could be an older adult, but if they can learn something and be able to demonstrate their competence, which in a lot of these digital media areas you can, you know, I mean, something simple, but you know, if, you, if you've developed 10 great websites and you can point people and say, these are 10 I developed, any Joe Bagadonis could look at 10 websites and say, these are all pretty darn great. And so when you can start to represent your proficiency in a visible, tangible way, which I think these things lend themselves to, when you can back it up with customer testimonials, I think you're, you're going to start to see this flourishing of more entrepreneurial adults creating great paths. Whether they end up being a full-time employee or a consultant or whatever. And so Apple will do it. The other wave of things that I think are really encouraging are these, and they started with just boot camps for coding, which is in some ways not the best of all places to start, I think, but you're seeing a lot of these short-term immersive You know, there's a company I came across a couple months ago where these numbers, I think, are stunning, but interesting. Um, This company takes, by and large, four-year degree biology majors. You know, what do we tell all kids in high school? The ticket to success in America today is a four-year college degree with a STEM major. So now let's take exactly that, four-year college degree earners with a bio major and their data says that the average salary of those, the starting salary for a bio major out of a four-year college, $30,000. <laughs> and they, they put them through this boot camp where they become experts on this healthcare. It's sort of like the you know salesforce.com for healthcare entities called Epic. And so they give them all sorts of skills in managing and working with Epic. I think it's a three-month program, just sort of a total immersion. And th- their salary goes from 30K to 95K. So, think about that four years and 75 to 300K to get to $30,000 salary, three months, maybe 10, 15K, maybe I don't even know how they structure it, but you know, suddenly you've got this really horrible skills. And, and you, just, okay, well, people are going to start figuring that out and say, maybe we don't need that. Well, do we really need that four year bio major? Or can we just go directly? You know, because as careers come and go, as skill demands come and go, it's going to be a world in constant flux going forward for these young adults, to me, that begs for shorter-term emergence, tangible, hireable skills. And then if two, three, four years into it, you say, not for me, or the skill set demands change, you pivot and do something different. And and instead, we have these long runways. You know, you think about, you know, somebody wants to be, I'll give you a good example. Somebody says, for whatever reason, I want to be a radiologist. As you know, said, four year undergraduate, four years of medical school, two years of post, you know, all this stuff, 10 years, you know, probably 500 K. How long is it going to be before AI is doing better radiology work than the best radiologist? You know, like, I think that's probably already true today.
0: Thank you for all that. It it made me think of two things that are going on with two uh, dear friends and colleagues of mine. So uh, our producer, Jason DeFilippo, who you met, uh, he recently started a, a newsletter that he calls The Pivoteer. Because what you just said is essentially his point of view, because that's been his life as a software developer, a website designer, a podcast producer, a photographer and various other things. He's one of these guys that has that magic blend of sort of a deep technical ability, engineering sort of a headset. But he's also a very creative guy anyway. So his new newsletter, The Pivoteer, is all about exactly that, how you kind of can pivot from very big career changes and be successful. The other one, as you were talking, you know, we've talked about a a category NATO of innovation coming in virtually every domain. And of course that applies to education and in a world where I can self curate my own learning, I do, I can pick the the right expert in the right sort of niche of the big field. And so uh, Cole And his partner created a a course, an online course, that is a cohort, that is to say there's a group of people that start at the same time and end at the same time. And it's a writing course, but it's not just a writing course, niche down once again. It's a digital writing course, but it's not just a digital writing course, niche down once again. It's a how to develop a daily online writing habit course. Mm -hmm. and it's called ship 30 for 30. That is to say they do a bunch of things to get you ready. And then you are going to ship, that is to say, hit publish on something you write for 30 days and you're going to get coached by them and you're going to coach each other, et cetera, et cetera. So my point is um, in a world where there's that much opportunity to learn anything and you can get way niche and learn from the best in a very specific niche, And automation comes to your point on the radiologist. It just seems like education is going to land in a very different place. And my fear is not so much with teachers, but with the people creating our education system that were they to listen to this conversation, and if this is overly unfair and I'm being an asshole, by all means, but if they were to listen to this conversation, a bunch of it might not even make sense to them, would sound like Chinese, but please tell me that's wrong and I'm being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: Maybe on other fronts, but no, That that's, you know, it, it is so interesting, though, because, you know, we did this film a few years ago. Uh, I had a great director, Greg Whiteley, but a film called Most Likely to Succeed, and it shows kids who can't wait to get to school every day. And they are working collaboratively on big, bold, cross-disciplinary projects. And they're trying things and it doesn't work and trying something else and it doesn't work and then trying something again. And, and they finally produce something they're really proud of. And teachers are trusted to teach to their expertise and passion. And yeah, you know, I traveled all over with that film. And, and really, I, I probably even personally done 500 screenings with communities of that film I've yet to have anybody say, this makes no sense to me. And and, in fact, quite the opposite. And and it sort of has led to a whole thing we call whatschoolcouldbe.org, but that provides resources to help an existing school become more like.
0: Does it have really good footnotes, too?
1: Uh, You know, we're missing the (laughs) footnote.
0: Sorry, I (laughs) couldn't help myself.
1: most people think if it's .org, somebody has vetted it, and it's got to be a high-quality organization. Whereas you know, you just go to GoDaddy and you just sign it up and call .org. So we call it .org, you know. But but business people say, yeah, that's the kind of training that would be perfect for the people who want to hire. Parents, I want my kids, in that kind of school students, I want to be in that kind. of, school. You know, like everybody says it, and it just sort of, you know, gets really tough to make it make a change. And I think a lot of it is that the people that are kind of the hold the keys to the castle on this tend to be those state legislators who, you know, they're just sort of like, prove to me it's working, right? Prove to me it's working. And, or the the U.S. Department of Education has not covered itself in glory. You know, it's it's been a nightmare. And so, so it's back to, you know, the, putting a lot more value on data than the future of kids. You know, like, we, we somehow are comfortable if we can get numbers That show is year in and year out, we're making no progress on objectives nobody believes in, but at least we've got the hard data that says it's failing instead of having the courage to say we could do so much better and so much more. And that's why I think this whole idea of having kids leave middle school and high school with, as I say, a proficiency or more than one, but a proficiency they enjoy, they've largely learned on their own and gotten so good at that the adult world values it. You know that is sort of a very freeing notion that I think can suddenly mean screw it. You know, if, if some idiot in the state capitol thinks they want to get tough with us with with these you know state mandated exams, which by the way, you know, this is my my running challenge, right? I, I'm I am desperate to make if find a state and make the the state senators and legislators on the education committee take the tests. To keep kids from graduating from high school, take them with a proctor and publish your scores. You know, if one out of a hundred state legislators can pass 11th grade and high school math, I'd be stunned, you know? And and it's just like, you can't just keep shoving this stuff down the throats of our kids and not have it at some point come back to haunt us. And and I think it is today, but, you know, how do you change a broken model? You know, oftentimes you just blow it away with something new.
0: And are we at that stage where it's time for a, a, uh, a, uh, not a digital transformation, but a digital creation, uh, where we, uh, start in the digital world and, uh, build our thinking from there?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the pandemic's been horrible, but, but, you know, it's made a lot of people question school. A lot of people have, Particularly parents have seen what their kid is studying in college when they're in the basement watching some boring lecture on Zoom. So I think skepticism about college is going up, but also corporations are breaking apart, right? I mean, suddenly when you have everybody working from home, it it opens up the question, should they be full-time employees or do we want to really restructure our organization and have lots more service providers that are just kind of at a distance providing it? i think those are really healthy developments and i you know there was a recent story in the wall street journal where i mean i'm skeptical that it's this high but if it is i'm really excited but it's like 50% of young adults prefer now the idea of working on their own instead of joining some large lumbering company and and when they start to say i'd rather create my own career path i think then we've got a chance to support them by saying well here's how you can do it and because Absolutely, they can. They, they, over and over, I find kids who actually have gotten good at something, I'll ask them, if you realize that adults would pay you for what you're good at, and they'll say, you really think so? They say, absolutely. Like, this is an opportunity, right? This is an opportunity. And so I think the more we can lean into that and let these younger kids realize, I can get good at something that most adults don't even have any understanding of. I live in this digital world and a lot of the power in organizations is held by the analog natives, but I know some stuff in the, the digital world that could really help them. And I am going to market that capability to these behemoths or these smaller companies, whatever. And I can actually have a great living doing that. That is very powerful. And I think when we start to highlight younger adults doing that, I think it I think it's there is this tipping point where a few start to say, I'm so much happier. And I sort of just bailed on the bullshit and got good at something I really loved and, and, and I'm good at, you know, it's like, that can be contagious.
0: Yes, absolutely. And even, you know, just to be clear, if it's, whatever that thing is, if it, even if it primarily existed in the analog world, you know, one of my favorite, not that I go to cocktail parties anymore, cause I'm going to just shelter in place for the next 50 fucking years, but cocktail party trick is to say, um, name me something that's not going to be connected to the internet. And uh, are you going to connect a candle to the internet? Well, I don't know. Maybe you will. Cause you don't want to burn down your house. I, I don't know. But it's, it's, yeah. as you start to think about things that you, you know, is a bar of soap, ever going to be connected to the internet? Well, I don't know, maybe there's some healthcare. I, I have no fucking idea, right? but it's it, there's a lot of things you could imagine that could be connected to the internet. And so my point is, um, even things that we view today as analog things will get if not created anew in a digital context or connected to the digital world or both, they'll certainly get transformed in that way over time. It's. It, So even things that feel like they're, uh, traditionally native analog will have more and more of a native digital context. Uh, and the more native digital you're thinking, the more likely uh, you are to, uh, to sort of take the past into the future in that regard.
1: Yeah. And, And to circle back to, to a couple topics you raised before you, you find the same sorts of divisions when you talk to a you know, analog natives about crypto or NFTs and talk to digital natives about that. And, you know, the the older people will say uh, crypto is a scam. You know, you need something with real value attached to it, like the U.S. dollar. Well, The only thing that holds the U.S. dollar together is collective belief that it's worth something. You know, there's nothing backing it up, right? I mean, we're $28 trillion in debt. And so why is crypto any less ephemeral than the U.S. dollar? You know, and the younger people real. I mean, there are a lot of younger people who've done really well in the crypto area. It's ditto NFTs. I think you had a great discussion about, you know, why is it that some uber rich person can buy a Monet, put the painting on display in the Museum of Modern Art or, you know, Metropolitan Museum, some museum, and and they've got their name by it. But that's it, right? Why is that somehow a superior experience than buying an NFT? yet? Most older people really struggle with those things, and you know yet is that going to define the future of our younger kids i mean i think I think it's going to be huge for these younger kids and so so it'll we'll give way and I think the real question is in a country that 's sort of in turmoil and, and i think in crisis what 's the fastest way to make this transition in a way that supports you know people living lives of purpose and fulfillment and To me, I think we just have to start empowering these younger kids to go with it.
0: Yes. You know, it's interesting on that point. Our friend Andrew Smallwood had maybe the greatest soundbite on this. He said, uh, native analogs by analog things digitally. Native digitals by digital things. And then you look at what's going on with work today. Oh, we need to return to work. When are we returning to work? When, you need to come back to work. Reed Hastings comes out and says, remote work is nothing but a negative. You got to come back to, when are we coming back to work? Well, if you're a native digital, you say, well, work's not a place, dude. Work's a space, not a place. Now look, yeah. do people still want to get together? Of course they do. Is it fun to do an offsite? Are, we, are there some, yeah, yeah, I get all that stuff. But the reality is, If you're a native digital, work is not a physical place.
1: Yeah. I had my wake up call. This goes back, I would say seven, six, seven years ago when one of the younger people I was working with said to me, well, I met with them yesterday and I knew that the younger person was in California and the person they met with was in Boston. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, did you fly to Boston? Did they fly to you? And they said, no, I met with them. And they did an online call. So a video chat with them and that for them was meeting with the person. And for me, that was not meeting with the person that was a video, you know, a Skype call at the time.
0: (laughs) Do you remember my conversation with Hannah? That was exactly the same. Yeah. This to her is a face-to-face meeting. It's not a face-to-face meeting to you and me is exact. There's the Delta. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, And, you know, And it's like, okay, what, you know, and when you step back and say, what are the opportunities here? I think the opportunities are enormous. And, you know, and then the question is, how do we, you know, sort of facilitate that? Because if we have lots and lots of people in our society moving forward with, with a sense of purpose and doing, you know, things that they find meaningful and supporting themselves, I think that's a good basis for holding the societal fabric together. And if people are sort of cut loose and adrift,
0: And so if I'm, um, you know, a superintendent uh, in charge of educational district, if I'm a principal, uh, if I'm a teacher, um, what are the things I can do to, uh, you know, I'm not sitting in government and I don't have massive purse strings and I still have to deal with college admission bullshit. But I got to believe there's still a lot that people who are. You know, really the heroes on the front lines of education can do to move us forward. What what advice would you have for them?
1: Yeah, and and we have this whole model and this resource called what It's sort of it's sort of a community platform. It's like Facebook without the ads and the scuzziness with lots of supportive resources and coaches. It's all free. But but we're big believers if you want to change the dynamic, not coming in and saying, throw everything out all at once. But to start taking some small, safe, confidence-building steps, and then that innovation is contagious. But my recommendation to schools, if I were a superintendent or a principal, I, I would do something like this. I would just say I'd pick a day. You know, we're in the northern hemisphere, so I'd pick a day in May. I'd say on May nineteenth in the evening, we're going to invite everybody in our community. You know, parents and teachers and business people and town council. We're going to go hard and get as many adults in our community to come to the school. And we're going to give every student in our school a chance to display something bold and creative and different that they created that they're really proud of. And I sure hope we can find ways between now and May to help every kid have the space and support to create something bold, something unbelievably out of the box that they're really excited about and do. And when schools do that, People fall in line. You know, it's a bit like, though so I'm dating myself, but, but when I was young, Kennedy, you know, JF Kennedy, John F. Kennedy said, we're going to put somebody on the moon by the end of the decade. And it was like that aspirational, oh my gosh, can you really do that? But all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things fell into place. I think our educators had that chance just by making an emphatic statement that this is what we want kids to do. And if it's not that, it ought to be something. Because once you sort of plant a flag in the ground. Particularly flag for tangible, authentic, creative work, that we're going to value this, we're going to celebrate it, we're going to invite people in to see what these kids are capable of. I've seen districts change top to bottom in a couple of years. I've I've certainly seen schools change in a matter of months. And and but they don't change by saying, we used to micromanage you one way, now we're going to micromanage you a different way. You know, or, you know, look at look at how this is a perfect example for everything we've been talking about. Look at all the Hoopla around Common Core, which was cu- curriculum scripted to the T by native analogs for a native analog college-focused, college-obsessed world that was rolled out. And said change everything, and we're going to immediately couple it to high-stakes tests. And by the way, you can't use any resources at your disposal when you take those tests. And the whole thing, despite some good ideas behind it, was a multi-billion-dollar flop. You know, you don't hear or see any sign of Common Core today. It's very different when you just say, hey, let's give our kids some space to do this. And, and if somebody said, okay, I'm in for that, what, what else could I do? As I say, I'm, I'm really focused on this goal of saying, let's just figure out ways to equip middle and high school kids with skills they enjoy, they've learned on their own, that are very hireable proficiencies. And in my book, I'll give an example because it's such a great one, is I ran across these kids in an eighth grade history class in North Dakota. And most kids are not terribly excited about history. And to the credit of the school, it's a school in West Fargo, they said, okay, you're not that excited. What would you like to do? And, and this was one of these ideas that just one led to another, led to another, just built on itself. But the kids said, Well, there's some cool buildings in downtown Fargo, and I've been there a bunch, and there are. They said, We'd like to capture the story of these buildings. So the I'm sure the faculty's first reaction is, Oh, you could write paper, you know, essays with footnotes and kids saying, you know, like nobody reads things with footnotes anymore. And they said, can we do photo montages that nah. they did videos, they did documentaries, many documentaries, one per building, researched a building, interviewed adults, created the documentaries. Another kid said, let's put them all on a website, created a website. Some kids that like woodworking said, why don't we design signs for the building? Another kid that was really into calligraphy said, I'll get the font. Another kid that wrote well said, I can help with the writing. Another tech kid said, so Why don't we put QR codes on the sign so they can then link to the documentaries? Then they did a big public exhibition in downtown Fargo and invited the town council and the mayor and all the business people and everything else. And I wasn't really as focused on these issues then as I, as I am now. What I should have said is when those business people observe it, have them lean into giving these kids summer assignments. And I think it's really powerful to think. And if, I gave a talk recently to a group of history teachers, history course teachers. I said, what if history class were an amazing career launcher? And like nobody thinks, of, I mean, what's the advice every parent gives to a kid in college? You know, don't major in history. Who's going to hire a history major? But, but if somebody has voice in, the, in learning how to think like an historian and capturing some aspect of the history of where they live, and in the process gets good at website design and does a podcast around it, does a digital marketing campaign to reach people, does great video documentaries, you know, about it. I mean, all that stuff is immensely hireable. And the eighth grader, if frigging eighth graders in Fargo can get good at this, tell me you can't, you know, like these are right there at our fingertips and and it's just a failure of imagination not to jump on this and make it happen. And so that's my message to these educators is it doesn't have to be taking a bulldozer and getting rid of everything. It, it is really rethinking what they're doing anyway. Shift it so the students have a bit more voice. Be confident they'll actually be engaged with it and retain it. But couple something that we usually think is a deadweight loser with developing great skills. You know, if somebody was an English teacher. I'd say, great. But have these kids write an op-ed for the local newspaper. You lobby to get that published, maybe do volunteer to be fact checkers for a local organization who's about to put something on their website. Kids in an English class could get really hireable skills out of that. or you know the coal course, right? Perfect example, right? It's like it's right there. It is right there. It is incredibly niched. I think that's a good thing. It begs for creativity. that's a great thing. It's something students are motivated to do. Another great thing. And it just sort of in runs
0: the normal hoop jumping bullshit that I think is absolutely destroying the nation. We love Ted dintersmith. You're a legend. Thank you so much. Um, anything else, Ted, before we wrap you're the legend here (laughs) that I would argue with you about, uh, anything else you'd like to touch on Ted before we uh, wrap. No, that that's terrific. I mean, I'm, I'm do a lot of events for free for schools
1: or, and so I'm usually a pretty easy mark when it comes to, would you help us? And so if somebody <laughs> hears say, this guy actually makes a shred, you know, like at least a modicum of sense, you know, like gonna track me down and I'll, and I'll do my best to help you out. But I'm really grateful. I think you've done really on a lot of different fronts, incredibly thought provoking work. And I, I really give you credit for making people who listen to you and your guests. I hope it's true for this one, but it's definitely true for the, your, your podcast series. I mean, you make people think you, you're, you push the edges and people can't have any other possibility when they listen to you other than to say, well, I'm thinking about things differently now. What a good thing.
0: Well, I don't know if you realize that that is pretty much the greatest uh, uh, compliment you can give me, but um, it is. And I thank you deeply for it. That is what I'm trying to do and, and make a difference in doing it, hopefully. Excellent. Excellent. Well, keep it up. That's all I can say. Thank you, brother, and uh, I look forward to having you come back. You, you're you're the you're my guy on the future of education. <laughs> as long as you want to be. <laughs>
1: let's, hope, let's hope somebody listens to me. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, never in doubt. At least that much I can say.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Ted. Bless you. Well, there is the legendary Ted Dintersmith, author of What School Could Be. And if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, we always love it when you uh, share our work with people you love and respect in your life. Uh, Most podcast apps have a share button that you could probably hit right now. And we also deeply appreciate um, uh, when you share uh, these episodes on social media. I also want to let you know that Ted... And our prior guest, Hannah Grady-Williams, who is the uh, Gen Z CEO advisor, Uh, that's episode 138, Hannah Grady-Williams. She also wrote a great book called Unlocking Gen Z. Ted and Hannah uh, inspired us uh, at Category Pirates, that is to say Nicholas Cole, Eddie Yoon and myself, to write a special mini book newsletter called How to Build Your First Crazy Profitable Business as a Teenager and it's subtitled 18 Radical Ideas for 18-Year-Old Entrepreneurs and Younger. If you would like to read this mini-book newsletter for free, send an email to blackhole at lockhead.com, simply put teenager in the subject line, and we will give you free access to Category Pirates, our top five business Substack newsletter for an entire week. Uh, so that you and any of the young people in your life that you love uh, can read it for free. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for hanging out. Uh, It means the world to me and everybody involved with Follow Your Different. Of course, our guest today, Ted Dintersmith, uh, author of the best-selling What School Could Be. Pick it up if you haven't read it already. Our dear friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping people dream, plan, and live their best life. Check out the uh, number one, LifeFullyLived.org. Our friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated, distant assistant. If you need an assistant who's nowhere near you and never will get near you, check out Bottleneck.online. Our friends at Play Bigger, uh, are the first category design advisory firm in the world. And I actually helped co-found the firm. <laughs> so if you're looking for help on category design, visit playbigger.com. And my friends at Autranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out net today. And make sure you ask them about their rapid relaunch program. And if you, like me, I have a broken heart over what's happened in Afghanistan of late and want to make a difference. Check out Warrior Angels with an S Rescue dot org today. That's Warrior Angels dot org. My wife and I have uh, written a pretty sizable check to help them do their great work of taking um, people out of one of the most horrible places on the planet right now. Warrior, oh, excuse, <laughs> Warrior Angels Rescue dot org. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we would love you just a little bit extra if you shared the shit out of it. Also, you need to know that this podcast uh, contains content known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the GOAT himself, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast. It's one of my top five grumpy old geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do uh, legendary technical execution around here. Show notes by GM Simon. Remember to uh, spread podcasts, not viruses. And, hey, Prius and Tesla drivers, please remember the left-hand lane is the fast lane. Pull over and let us by. Um, Tom Waits was right. Remember to listen to Joan Jett. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And, hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott Amalonic, editor of Ink Magazine, or maybe Stink Magazine. Sorry, Scott, we just ran out of time for you. That's it for now. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.